This is the documentary on one from RTE in Ireland. Just a note to say that the multi-award winning documentary on one is now available for sponsorship, both on radio and podcast. If you're interested, you can email us documentaries at rte.ie for further information. And now to today's story. From the documentary on one and narrated by Bill Murphy, this is The Little Shop of Secrets. This idea of the Wallace sisters, when someone had described them to me as frail ladies, very hard-working ladies, running a small shop, and this was the centre of the IRA intelligence network in Cork City. Growing up, I remember my mother talking a lot about her aunts, my grand-aunts, the Wallace sisters, Sheila and Nora, and the important role they played in the Irish War of Independence in Cork. She talked a lot about their little shop in St Augustine Street, Not so much that they were shopkeepers, but that they were intelligence officers in the old IRA. They formed a headquarters that would serve their purposes fantastically. And that was the shop of Nora and Sheila Wallace in St. Augustine Street. Very few people would have suspected that it was the headquarters of the Cork Brigade of Irish Volunteers. But that's exactly what it became. My mum passed away a few years ago, and I regret now that I didn't ask her more about her aunts. Every operation, in effect, has its origin in their shop. It is absolutely made clear by those who survived and who lived to tell the tale that all the the major players on the scene, certainly in terms of intelligence, that was where they met, either to have an informal chat and gossip or to exchange specific pieces of information. From 1919 to 1921, Ireland fought for independence from the British Empire and my grand-aunt's secret activities were a central part of that fight in Cork. The only tangible evidence of those activities that my mother left us was Sheila Wallace's War of Independence medal and a stock-taking ledger containing a list of items that you'd be shocked to find in your little corner shop. Anybody associated with them had a lot of time for them just because they were really committed but also really skilled activists and were just incredibly intelligent, being able to think fast, not giving anything away, and just be able to hide in plain sight. That's kind of a remarkable thing about them. I got a feeling that people didn't fully appreciate just how up to the neck they were in all this. My cousin Bernadette Wallace lives in my grand-aunt's old house. Hello, how are you? I'm great altogether. Great to see you. How are you getting on with this business? Very well. I'm Bernadette Wallace and I am niece to Nora and Sheila Wallace. Bernadette has taken great care over the years to preserve the house and the items that belonged to both Sheila and Nora. And so, in many respects, the house hasn't changed since the Wallace sisters were living there. Uh, There are a lot of photographs around the house in relation to the War of Independence We serve neither king nor kaiser. I think that's the Citizens' Army. Correct. That's quite a famous photograph, but I'd imagine that's quite an old print. Yes. Over in the other corner, of course, we have... It's a plaque of Padraig Pierce and Tomás McCartan. Bernadette tells me about an apron, which was given to my grand-aunts by Countess Markovich. That apron today has a special pride of place in the Sligo Museum. Over in this corner, we have a famous... Eamon de Valera. Is there any connection between Nora and Sheila and Eamon de Valera? Well, himself and Sinead's band de Valera, they were very close to Nora and Sheila. So every time Dev came to the house, 
Nora had to call the local painter to say, please come and paint the house. Dev is coming. It's kind of interesting to imagine De Valera sitting in this room, chatting yes. with your aunts. Uh, yes. It's quite an extraordinary memory to have. But who were these women who were close to former Taoiseach and President Eamon de Valera and the renowned activist and first woman to be elected to Doyle Aaron, Countess Markovich? The Wallace sisters were talked about a lot in our family, but I hadn't heard much about them other than that. This was surprising, as they seemed to be connected to so many of the central figures of the Irish fight for independence exactly a hundred years ago now. Hi Ted, how are you? Hi, how are you? My brother Ted has researched our own family's connection to the Wallace sisters. So, you have some material for us? This is a census from 1901 in a house in Ballahoran. My grandmother and grand-aunts came from a large farming family in the parish of Dunamore, about 20 miles northwest of Cork City. They were a quite big family. There was ten all together. And it has the father and the mother, a daughter, Julie. So Julie would have been Sheila? Yes. Correct. And Nora, who was six. There were seven girls and three boys in the family. Sheila, the elder of the two sisters, was born in 1887 and Nora in 1893. Left. So we were heading for... Kilcullen South. Kilcullen South. This was where the old family farm was in and around the late 19th century. Life was very hard in those days and many people were very poor and suffered evictions from the land. To the best of my knowledge, any holdings, any buildings are long gone. It was probably a difficult area to scrape a living together. I mean, how big is an acreage that could be out there? Could be two acres maybe a field and a bit beyond. You're not talking very much, but enough to keep a family in food and milk and probably they grow potatoes. And as soon as the kids were of age, they went to Donamore National School. Sheila moved to the city in her early 20s in search of a better life. She rented the premises at St Augustine Street with a shop on the bottom floor and living quarters overhead. Nora still only in her late teens, soon joined her sister. By 1911, Sheila had gone to St Augustine Street. Nora had joined her and they're both down as reading and writing. From the photos we have, Sheila is petite and delicate looking as a young woman. Nora looks more robust and formidable. These physical characteristics, from what my mother used to say, mirrored their personalities. Okay, we're on the Grand Parade, which just leads off um, Patrick Street, which is the very centre of the city. And across the road is St. Augustine's Church. And to the rear of that is St. Augustine Street. And that's where the Wallace sisters had their shop. As you can see, it's a quite a narrow uh, street with not much true traffic in it. Uh, of course, the shop existed long before uh, I was around, uh, but I do remember our mother talking very fondly about the shop. She worked in there when she was a young girl. Did you ever get to see the shop? I know you would have been very young at the time, but can you have yes, any record? I can stating opposite us now, about there would have been the front door. My brother Ted. Wooden flory, a single hundred watt bulb, bare shelves, a wooden counter with a small little where you put a penny in. It was money for the African missions. The little shop sold sweets, 
cigarettes, newspapers, books and religious goods. There might have been a box of Cadbury's chocolate, which I'd have been eyeing all the time, of course, snack bar or whatever. In the back was the kitchen. There was a gas cooker, uh, a little table with plastic covering, and one would light the fire. A toilet was out at the side and steps gone up to two bedrooms. There was two entrances. Well, in pictures there is. There's the front door of the shop, the front door of the house, and a skylight at the back. Like most of the country, Cork City in the 1900s was a grim place, with high unemployment and very bad living conditions. While there was a possibility of home rule, where Ireland would have some powers of self-government, full independence was far off. To find out more about my grand-aunt's early days in Cork City and what motivated them to become involved in the nationalist movement, I spoke to local historian Anne Toomey. When they came into the city, I think they were assailed by the complete class difference in Cork City, but also the terrible conditions of the lanes and the tenements. And that stoked their sense of social justice. That sense of socialist nationalism found its expression through political groups like the Irish Citizens' Army and through the increasingly powerful trade union movement. They were very involved in the Irish Citizens' Army. They were very big on that side of things from kind of 1914, 1915 to 1918. They were still very much building a reputation for themselves as two women that were very interested in the Irish language, in Irish newspapers, and very much so in the Irish labour cause. And their big hero was James Connolly. And they were quite friendly with him and Countess Markovich. So if you like, they were already cutting their teeth on the Irish national question, but from the socialist perspective. They, they saw that society had to change as much as the political situation had to change. So, Prior to the outbreak of the War of Independence, you had these clusters of separatists, a lot of people who became Republicans. Dr John Berganovo from the History Department in University College Cork has written several books on the period. And there was kind of overlapping groups of radicals and militants. And you had in Dublin and Belfast and Cork, you had pretty big cohorts who kind of formed a, a cadre of folks who would lead the revolutionary movement and the independence movement. So in Cork, among that group are the Wallace sisters. They're very apparent at a relatively early stage. Their news agents seem to have sold some radical publications, including left-wing publications. And so, but yeah, one-stop shop for all kind of radicals in the city, I think. In Easter 1916, an armed rebellion broke out on the streets of Dublin with the Irish volunteers fighting to gain independence from the British Empire. All around the country, volunteers mobilised for what became known as the 1916 Rising. But in Cork, nothing came to pass because of conflicting orders and a failure of communications. When the Rising failed... The leaders, including Podrick Pierce, were executed by British forces. This created a new thirst for Irish independence throughout the country. And in Cork, a surge in rebellious activity began to gain momentum. The Cork volunteers were then commanded by Tomás McCurtain with Terence McSweeney as his second in command. University College Cork historian Gabriel Doherty explains how things were changing. I mean, bearing in mind the lessons of, of 1916, which was that Nobody knew what was going on. 
on the volunteer side, let alone what was happening on, on the British side, uh, there is a realisation that that intelligence failure uh, and failure of communications within the volunteers is something that has to be addressed very, very quickly. Most of the Cork volunteers' weapons were surrendered and local leaders were arrested and interned. When the volunteers are released from internment in December 1916 and then most of the others are released in 1917, albeit there's a series of re-arrests, intelligence is something which is prioritised all across the volunteer structure. It's not just in Cork, it's in Dublin and elsewhere. My grand-aunt's shop became a place where many of the leading figures of the revolutionary movement in the city visited and Sheila and Nora soon became trusted confidants of both McCurtain and Maxweeney. In terms of the Wallace sisters, they were fearless. I suppose that there was sort of a little bit of the sort of the Fenian outlook to them. And it was realised that these women and their shop and the women, perhaps more than the actual physical building, could serve as, in effect, an informal brigade HQ. In June 1917, as the Cork volunteers schemed to gain independence, they suffered a major blow when their headquarters in Shear Street was shut down by order of the Crown forces. They needed to find another place to meet and plan their operations. Some place safe and discreet. Uh, and the shop in St Augustine Street with two sort of spinsters running it is, is the perfect cover. They are at the front, apparently just going about their business. Uh, in reality, even while they were doing their regular business, they're also doing business for the volunteers. And out the back, sedition is being planned in no uncertain terms. That headquarters is something which has to be informal rather than formal, but you need the right quality of people who will be acting as the cover, and, and you could not have found better material than the Wallace sisters. I tried to imagine the shop. Dark, dimly lit, full of religious statues and shelves with newspapers, cigarettes behind the counter and sweets in jars. I picture Nora serving a customer, maybe a mother and her child looking at the sweets. Or maybe it's a man who walks in, businesslike, and is ushered into the back by Sheila to meet with fellow volunteers to discuss the latest dispatches or plan an enemy raid. 1917, 1918, the emphasis is very much on acquiring new weapons. I mean, the weapons that were lost in 1916, uh, you can't fight unless you, you obtain the weapons. Probably the best and, and least risky operations was in September 1917, when the grammar school in Cork is raided. They had an officer training corps in the grammar school, and 47 rifles were seized, which was a huge haul, considering how difficult it had been to acquire basically the same number before the 1916 Rising. I took my search for more information about my grand-aunts to the Cork Public Museum, which holds the personal papers of Sheila and Nora Wallace that had been loaned to the museum by my cousin, Bernadette Wallace. I am Daniel Breen, curator Cork Public Museum. These are a wonderful collection of documents that were donated to the museum, I think, in the 90s, uh, related to the Wallace sisters. As we opened the box, we could see files full of photos, letters, essays, lists and other material. It seems to be a combination of personal recollections, poetry, typed or handwritten. Wow, they're, they're amazing personal artefacts to have. It's quite interesting to see their actual handwriting. This was really a treasure trove of first-hand material belonging to my grand-aunts. Myself and my brother Ted couldn't wait to go through it. 
Among the papers, we found handwritten notes made by Sheila, where she lists the military activities she was directly involved in. House was brigade headquarters. Had to be ready day or night to receive dispatches. Was not allowed to take part in any public display. From an early stage, the Wallaces, they were the kind of base of operations for the IRA in Cork City, initially for the whole county. Dr. John Bergenovo. So initially that headquarters was for all of the IRA in County Cork, and then they separated into three brigades. The Cork number one brigade was mid-Cork in the city, Cork number two brigade was North Cork, and Cork number three brigade was West Cork. One of the key people in that was the brigade adjutant, the guy who became in charge of all the communications and written orders, and later also their intelligence network, and that was Florio Donahue. And he worked in a little draper shop on the corner of Castle Street and North Main Street. And according to him, it became apparent that they needed a real proper structure for all the messages that were coming in and coming out. So he kind of approached them and they were already known to people. They were experienced activists. He said they were really discreet um, and they were really trustworthy. Was aware of all activities during the period. Had to keep touch between county battalion officers and brigade officers. Anybody who came to contact the IRA, you always went to the Wallaces and the Wallaces were kind of good at figuring out who was legit and who wasn't. That was part of their function. Sinn Féin swept the boards in the December 1918 election and on the 21st of January 1919, they formed a breakaway government in the first Doyle Erin, which declared Irish independence and was later outlawed by the British government. The volunteers, now known as the Irish Republican Army, escalated their operations to an armed conflict with British forces and a Royal Irish Constabulary, the RIC. And so began the War of Independence. Kind of the important thing about the Wallaces to keep in mind is they weren't coming to Mon. They were, they were IRA activists. They were totally integrated within the IRA organisation. Sheila, now in her early 30s, and Nora, in her mid-20s, were among the thousands of women active in the War of Independence. Most were members of Common Amman, the Republican women's organisation that gave logistical backup to the men in the IRA. But in a society where a woman's role was just to support the men, Sheila and Nora were on equal terms with them. Sheila was a brigade officer in charge of communications. Nora was essentially an intelligence agent for the brigade intelligence department. Yeah, I think that's a a very interesting element of their story as two young women who seem to be considered very highly by their male counterparts. Is their role unique in that sense? Sheila Wallace was the officer commanding communications which meant she dealt with all the dispatches and couriers, all the people who were running messages. And the Cork One Brigade had a really good network of couriers, bike couriers, train couriers, ship couriers. She seems to have managed that kind of operation. And uh, I haven't seen any other woman brigade officer, brigade staff officer in the IRA as a whole. So she's unique in that way. Um, There are a couple other women involved at battalion level, but no one at that brigade level. So that's unique. Um, Nora Wallace was almost certainly was assisting her sister kind of in that operation. And then also was serving as an agent to the IRA intelligence officer, Florio Donahue, kind of reaching out, contacting IRA assets in the British administration and communications network and what have you. I mean, in Cork City, especially, a lot of women were involved in intelligence. And so that wouldn't have been that uncommon, but still pretty remarkable. She would have been considered a really, you know, a highly valued 
asset to IRA intelligence gathering and intelligence uh, operations. And for people to be trusted with that kind of information meant that they were considered intelligent, they were considered discreet, they were considered able to think on their feet, quick-witted. And that seems to have been very much how Sheila and Nora were perceived by their IRA comrades. Okay, so there's another document here, Mm. a handwritten note. And the top of it is copy of S. O'Hegarty's reference. So that's Sean O'Hegarty. This oh, yes. is the heavies. All right. I call them the heavies. So just reading from it. In the early volunteer days, Wallace's shop became a rallying ground, ground for city and county men. And as the, the organisation developed and the campaign became more intense, it was clearly the natural selection as a carrying house for dispatches. So this is further indication of the um, communications role that the shop had. Yeah. But its natural situation would have been quite useless if the Wallace sisters had not been the right stuff. Miss Sheila Wallace, the senior, was put in charge. All dispatches, in and out, passed through her hands. She possessed the fundamental of all efficiency, a sound common sense with the highest courage and astute but natural feeling which nevertheless did not overreach her judgment. So their personalities, their abilities to be discreet hmm. and to be calm under extreme pressure is borne out by this uh, testament by Sean O'Hegarty. Nora also worked closely with Commandant Tomás McCurtain. She was like his eyes and ears around the city. In an account of her activities, she writes, Received and delivered verbal and written messages for Tomás McCurtain kept in contact with different brigade officers and had the responsibility of deciding when and how people seeking interviews with senior officers were to be put in touch. Okay, that's interesting again, isn't it? Yeah. That element of trust um, and and the most senior people within the organisation being able to rely on them for their discretion, uh, making decisions on where and how that information would be Mm. further transmitted. As the operations and activities grew more ambitious within the Cork No. 1 Brigade, my grand-aunt's responsibilities grew. From not just providing a safe place for meetings among the leadership and passing messages, but to creating a spy network within the Crown Forces. Maintained contact with a soldier in Cork Barracks and got very useful information from him. But Nora did have a connection with a spy in Victoria Barracks. Local historian Anne Toomey. No Collins's Barracks, it was the centre of British military um, rule really in the city and his name was Pat Margetts but he used to help her um, pass information as to who had been caught, who was imprisoned up there, who had been just delivered into the barracks for I suppose interrogation and that and he was also able to tip her off on who had been giving information you know so that was a tricky one then as well because she had to pass that on and you know whatever happened after that then in terms of dealing with informers and all that sort of stuff. Uh, so she's a tough role that way. Jerry White is my name. I'm a local historian with a huge interest in military history from 1913 to 1923. I'm just retired from the Defence Forces where I served for 43 years. Two of the things really that are essential to any military organisation are good communications and good intelligence. Without those, any chance of a successful operation would be reduced. The two girls themselves, because they were young ladies at the time, became responsible for communications because at the end of each meeting, a number of decisions would be taken and those decisions would have to be communicated to the battalions here in the city and the outlying battalions in the districts around Cork. To the outside world, they were simple shopkeepers. 
but behind the scenes, they were leading a double life of secrecy. I can't emphasise enough the great danger that the two girls faced at the time, because what they were doing was actually treasonous in the eyes of the British authorities. If caught, they potentially could be executed, or at the very least, put away behind prison bars for a long, long time. But they persisted. They placed themselves in danger on a daily basis in pursuit of the objective of an independent Irish Republic. Nora was responsible for a lot of the dispatch boxes and that finding safe places around the city. And Toomey. Setting up all these lines and chains of communication, which is fascinating to me. Communications that were being run down to be dispersed across Munster were going through the Wallaces and going through their network of couriers. Dr John Bergenovo. We also know that they had a courier network for train communications from Dublin where they had guys on the trains who basically carried messages. Often they would just tack them to the footstep underneath the, the carriages or they'd have engineers in the engine compartment. They'd put them in a, like seemingly discarded Guinness bottles or lanterns if they weren't lit during daylight. And then they had a young teenager messenger who'd go down to Kent Station, collect the messages, bring them back to the Wallaces, and apparently they had some kind of hidden compartment uh, at the train station in the Wallaces, and they'd kind of put them up, and then stuff would go that, that way. Think about Cork in terms of it's a railway terminus for five different railways. It's also a big, major southern port. So there's also a lot of communications going to New York and going to like Liverpool and London. And so all those messages coming out of Munster are in a certain way going through. If they're not going to Dublin, they're coming out of Cork. And if they're going out of Cork, they're going through the Wallaces. So that's pretty amazing. In many cases, they'd be sent out in code. Jerry White. Because the last thing would happen if your dispatch was intercepted it obviously would give your enemy a good idea about your operations. Always kept the code in the house and was responsible for same. Read code messages from the GPO and frequently decoded them. And for the most part, an alphabetical cipher would be used that would match one letter against another letter. In other words, the letter A would actually mean the letter W or something like that. And for most people, it would be very hard to decipher unless you had the actual cipher. So these ciphers would have been used and passed around to the different units and like when the dispatches were there, they'd be deciphered. When the intelligence service of the brigade was organised, she had special duties in relation to a part of this work. My brother Ted. Copies of enemy telegraph messages in code were delivered to her from our men working the GPO. Nora, she had the code book. Okay, that's interesting again, isn't it? Hers was the only place to which such messages were delivered. She retained these messages if it was not possible to deliver them immediately to the brigade intelligence officer. Frequently she assisted in decoding them and it was the usual practice to leave the code key at brigade headquarters in her custody. Again, strategically it would have been of huge importance to the British forces if they could get their hands on those codes. Another remarkable aspect of the little shop and my grand-aunt's clandestine activities was its location only a few minutes' walk from the Bridewell RIC station in the Colquay to the north and another RIC station on Tucky Street to the south. In a real sense, they were hiding in plain sight. It's more late 1919 that things start to get very active in Cork City. Gabriel Doherty. One of the first things that the IRA do is to start 
and this again is part of a national policy, is to start attacking RIC barracks, especially rural barracks. And of course, remember, within the, the Cork Number no. 1 Brigade, you have very extensive rural areas as well as within both the city and Cove. So those barracks are attacked. They are indefensible, very vulnerable, uh, and they are vacated. Throughout 1920, the RIC deployed the auxiliaries and the infamous blackened hands, mainly made up of ex-British Army World War I veterans. These were brought in to support the RIC. This really ramped up the violence, with increased attacks and reprisals on both sides. Tomás McCurtain, who was Lord Mayor of Cork, but also commander of the Cork No. 1 Brigade, was under constant threat. But he and his comrades, including my grand-aunts, didn't fully appreciate how much danger he was in. The atmosphere in the city had really ratcheted up in around 19, March 1920. And Toomey. And there were tit-for-tat reprises, and at that stage the Black and Tans were in the city. And one particular incident on that same day, it was the killing of Constable Murta. That was along Pope's Key. That really ratcheted up. And the RIC and, of course, the Black and Tans, they were looking for, you know, a tit-for-tat. And they made clear that Tomas then was a legitimate target in the eyes of the, the state forces. In Nora's papers, we found her recollection of Tomás McCurtain calling to the shop the night he died. Cork's Lord Mayor, after a busy day in that capacity, visits his HQ late at night and does some volunteer work. Ready to go, he questions, What are you knitting, Nora? A jumper? That's right. I thought it might be socks for some fella. Mind no court in my boys till the war is over. We'll have something else to do and I don't want them leaving any widows. On the night that he was killed, the last place he visited was your grand-aunt's shop and then went home to Blackpool and later on that night, you know, the door was broken down and he was shot in his own house and later died from his injuries. It must have really hit at the heart of both your grand-aunts. Their grief, I think, motivated them to stick it out even though it became very dark days in Cork, really very difficult days. When I was very young, I remember my mother had a stock-taking ledger with the name Sheila Wallace on it and lots of lists in it. My brothers and sisters and I didn't realise what the ledger was for and it was actually used by one of them as a stamp album. One gauge backside, one gauge with, these sound like shotguns, uh, miniature 22s. I only now realise the full significance of the ledger. Kept and moved small arms and ammunition frequently. Was responsible for keeping arms and ammunition. Kept by Sheila in the shop, the ledger contains an extremely detailed inventory of the arms kept by the Cork No. 1 Brigade IRA. Springs ejection, part of a machine gun, 31. She had springs seared. These were all the guts of the weapon. Springs trap, butt plate. Amazing. 46 Ross rifles. Well, it's also an indication of actually how much equipment that Cork No. 1 Brigade actually had at their disposal. Rifles magazine long, two. Whether it was stored in the home of the Wallace sisters or not, we don't know. But it must have been stored somewhere that would have enabled them to carry out such a detailed stock-taking. And it is exceptionally detailed. To find out more about the ledger, I brought it to the military archives in Cahill Barracks, Dublin, and spoke with the officer in charge, Commandant Daniel Iotis. I suppose what we call in modern parlance, it's a, it's a quartermaster's ledger of weapons and ammunition and associated hard and soft ordnance. So it really is a, 
a unique piece of history that you have here. I suppose it speaks to the proficiency and the professionalism as well of what she was doing. So I imagine that Sheila had to keep this quite securely as well, because even without the materials mentioned, that this would have been enough to get her into an awful lot of trouble with police and army forces at the time. By mid-1920, IRA operations intensified with more raids on enemy barracks. My grand-aunt's very much in the thick of the action. Kept gun cotton for the blowing up of Blarney Barracks. Sheila writes. Helped to disguise the men going on the job and also gun cotton for the blowing up of King Street Barracks. Sister and myself had to leave our house that night as brigade order. They thought our house would go up as a reprisal. After McCurtain's killing, the man who succeeded him was his second-in-command, Terence McSweeney. Jerry White. He succeeded Tomas McCurtain both as Officer Commanding Cork Number Brigade, but also as Lord Mayor of Cork. One story that was in the family was that on the odd occasion, Terence McSweeney served customers from behind the counter in the shop. And I found where Nora actually writes about this in her papers. It is early morning. I am wakened by my sister. Terry's below. He wants me to take this dispatch and wouldn't let me close the shop. I dressed and hurried downstairs to find Terry behind the counter reading a paper. He had sold two packets of cigarettes and a paper. He enjoyed his little minutes of shopkeeping. It was his last visit. He was arrested outside City Hall on the 12th of August and charged with sedition for being... He was found in possession of a cipher belonging to the Royal Irish Constabulary. He was sentenced to two years in Brixton Prison in London and he announced at his court-martial in Victoria Barracks that he had been refusing food and he said he would continue to do so until either he was freed or he went to his death. In the weeks and months during McSweeney's hunger strike in prison, his comrades met around the kitchen table of my grand-aunt's shop to plan ways of securing his release by either putting the Crown under pressure to let him go or, if necessary, break him out of jail. One of these plans was an audacious one, to capture the commander of the British Army, 6th Division, based in Victoria Barracks, Major General Peter Strickland. The IRA received information that he was going to head back to England and his car would be coming down Patrick's Hill. A unit comprised of selected members of Cork Dunbarn Brigade positioned themselves at the bottom of Patrick's Hill on the day in question. And towards the evening, his car did appear. Gunshots were exchanged, but fortunately for the general, he actually managed to make good his escape and board his ship for England. In October 1920, after 74 days of hunger strike, Terence McSweeney died in Brixton Prison. His hunger strike drew the eyes of the world on the conflict for independence that was then raging throughout Ireland. Sean O'Hegarty took over running the brigade. I remember my mother referring to him as Boss Hegarty, and I think as a child she found him a formidable and scary figure. That was, of course, many years after the War of Independence. Under his leadership, the campaign intensified. In December 1920, the brigade carried out an ambush, wounding a dozen auxiliaries leaving their barracks and killing one of them. In an act of reprisal that later became known as the Burning of Cork, Crown forces set fire to the centre of the city. Although over five acres close to the shop were destroyed, the shop itself appeared to be unscathed. By late 1920, casualties were mounting on both sides. While the numbers were nowhere near as high as conventional war, the viciousness and violence with which both sides carried out their attacks made Cork and the whole of Ireland a dangerous place for everyone. 
Manny probably felt the struggle wasn't worth it. The next phase, and this, of course, is, is, is a hugely controversial phase, is, is the, the simple shooting of spies. Um, the British realise that they're losing the intelligence battle, that the IRA know more about them than they do about the IRA. They know practically nothing about uh, the IRA. So they now start actively courting spies. And, of course, also spies themselves volunteer their services to the British. In many cases... Not for money. I mean, in many cases, these will be members of the loyalist community who feel it is their duty, as it were, to put down what they see as rebellion. You also do have individuals who do pass on information for money. In Sheila's papers, we find reference to an ex-British soldier called Timothy Quinlisk, who was shot dead in Cork by the IRA earlier that year for being suspected of spying. After Quinlisk was shot, some brigade officers remained in our house all night. You start to then have this very, very brutal war where the IRA have to both take out and spies for their own safety, and they also have to send out a signal to anybody else who's thinking of doing the same thing, that the payment they will receive ultimately will be death. But all of this comes back to intelligence. You, you cannot take out spies if you don't have intelligence. My grand-aunts and the shop continued to provide a safe haven for the active volunteers during this intense period of the war because they always had something cooking on the stove. Again, that was kind of their cover, so that if any man was cut there, they were there eating and they were, they were a lodger or they were this or whatever. But it actually had a practical purpose, because guys that were on the run or guys that were released from prison were really put to the pin of their collar to find food and to keep well. So in that way, like they were also a support network for the guys on the run. The stress must have been extraordinary, not to be discovered and caught. The shop came under increasing surveillance and under a lot of pressure because it was such a terrible time. They lived on their nerves. They lived on the edge. They had to step up to the plate every day, never knew if the knock on the door was the end of the line for them or somebody else looking for their help. As valuable documents were always held in HQ and it was being frequently raided, one person had to be on alert for the whole 24 hours and meant staying awake at night. This was done, Sheila and I sharing duty. So one of them was on guard. On 24-hour call. In the shop, looking out for any raids because of the importance of the material that they held uh, in the shop. The war was raging out of control. Martial law was declared in parts of Ireland, including Cork, in an attempt to curb the activities of the IRA. Crown forces carried out raids and searches on homes around the city and ordinary people were subject to curfew at night. Later it became a requirement to keep a list of all people staying in the house. While British intelligence gathering operations were definitely not as good as those of the IRA in Cork... Jerry White. They did manage to identify various suspects or key locations around the city that were being used. And eventually, one location that came under suspicion was the shop of the Wallace sisters in St. Augustine Street. The British finally caught up with the Wallace sisters. House was raided by tens and military. Two men arrested on the premises, T. Crofts and E. Lynch. They were released after a week and I was arrested, court-martialed and fined two pounds for not having their names behind the door. After that, we were raided continuously. After years of seditious activity, the shop was shut down in May 1921 by order of H.W. Higginson, military governor. We will never really know how much the British knew of my grand-aunt's activities and for how long they were under surveillance. 
but maybe if they knew the full extent to what Sheila and Nora were up to, they would almost certainly have put them in prison, or maybe even worse. When the shop was closed down temporarily, they set up a stall in the English market to continue, somehow, the running of the operations. They may have lost their means of making a livelihood, but seemed determined to continue the intelligence and communications work of the brigade. We took a stall in the market and held divisional GHQ and brigade dispatches. No dispatch was ever found by the enemy forces. We saved them all, right through to the end. A truce was called on the 11th of July 1921, bringing a halt to all insurgent operations in Ireland. While there can be no definitive number of casualties, the numbers who died on both sides in Cork totaled over 500 during the two and a half years of the conflict. A treaty was signed between the Irish and the British, creating a self-governing free state of Ireland. The fact it did not mean full independence ignited a vicious and sometimes brutal civil war. The Wallaces chose the anti-treaty side and were close to Devil Era. In some respects, this was a darker time when old comrades quickly became enemies. Once the civil war had petered away and it must, you know, that was a very, very hard time for, for the people on all sides. But when it all, the dust settled, your grandans just, OK, to put things to one side. And the next day they appeared in the shop selling the tobacco, the cigarettes and the, the newspapers and continued on. So this is the online um, military service pensions collection mm. and you can see... Sheila's uh, file reference there in her. In the 1930s, those who took part in the War of Independence could apply for a pension from the Free State Government. Those two ladies had to fight tooth and nail for their pension. And Toomey. To prove that they had active service. In fact, a lot of the women found it very difficult to prove that. Like in World War II, the female agents found it very difficult because it wasn't the accepted norm to see women involved in wars, if you like. Their old comrades had to provide witness statements in support of their pension claims. By the nature of revolutionary warfare and guerrilla warfare, the kind of records that a state or a national military will keep don't exist. Commandant Daniel Iotis of the Military Archives. So it was necessary for people applying for pensions to give references to either confirm or contradict the testimony that this person had given um, in application for a pension. And so yeah, it was down to, I suppose, an adjudicated committee and the, the testimony of, of supporting claims S.O. Hagerty, 5th of June, 1937. The highest praise must be given to Miss Sheila Wallace and her sister Miss Nora Wallace for the manner in which all difficult situations were handled. And Miss Wallace, in her claim for acknowledgement, is entitled to the most generous allowed by the board. It wasn't until the 1940s that the Department of Defence recognised that both my grand-aunts had served in the Irish Volunteers and IRA. While cataloguing by the Military Service Pensions Project is ongoing, this puts Sheila and Nora in a very select group of less than 10 women identified so far, whose revolutionary work outside of Cumann earned them this high status by the state, the state whose foundation they had risked so much to secure. But again, what distinguishes the Wallaces is that they were recognised as IRA officers by the IRA. And so if you have, like, brigade lists of... A brigade officer, Sheila's listed as a brigade officer. She's not listed as Commandant because she wasn't. She was IRA. Although it was only Sheila who had served formally as a brigade officer, the nature of Nora's work meant that they were both awarded the same level of military service pension as a male IRA brigade officer typically received. And it was Sheila was awarded it first. 
and then Nora. Along with the pension, medals were awarded by the state in recognition of the service of those who took part in the war. Sheila's medal was handed down to my mother and it's one of our most prized possessions. Well, the significant thing for me is the fact that it has the bar on it. Commandant Daniel Iotis. So, I mean, the difference between a medal with a bar and without a bar, it indicates that the recipient had been engaged in active combat. Nora would have been entitled to a medal too, but there's no trace of it in the family. Nora and Sheila never married. In 1939, they bought a house in Mayfield, on the north side of Cork City, to live in while they kept the shop going in St Augustine Street. My cousin Bernadette Wallace now lives there. So they moved at that street, and the house is called Teak Sheila, which I still have kept the name after Sheila, who was a very close, who was very close to my father. Despite the great danger that Sheila had lived through during the War of Independence and the Civil War, it was a simple accident that ended her life. In Easter week 1944, she was alighting from a bus on Patrick Street in Cork when she fell and sustained a head injury. She died a few days later in hospital. To Nora, it must have been a sudden and devastating loss as they were so close. Sheila was only 57. The word went out that she died and the IRA is a tribute to Sheila Wallace, what they thought of her, how they trusted her, how she minded them. They carried her coffin the whole way from the church all the way out to St Finbar Cemetery in Relays. That's what they thought of your grand-aunt. Not a lot of people that get that kind of honour. That was a big demonstration of the old IRA. Uh, They were really honouring her and I think that's because she had this kind of unique standing within the movement. Nora's health deteriorated not long after the Civil War. She was treated for tuberculosis and made several visits to a sanatorium in Switzerland. According to her pension application, it was caused by her going out in all weathers during the War of Independence. She kept the shop going until the 1960s, when her health began to worsen. We made an unexpected discovery of a recording of Nora in an RTE documentary made in 1960 about her beloved comrade, Terence McSweeney. He was beautiful. Dark. Tall. He was tall and meant Having heard about her all my life, I was taken aback to hear her actual voice. And he generally wore a slouch hat. There always a little red tuft of hair peeping under it. He never seemed to be able to control that little tuft of hair. She died on the 17th of September 1970 in St Martin's Nursing Home in Cork. The newspapers of the time report that the Taoiseach, Jack Lynch and Commandant General Tom Barry were there, as well, of course, as my grandmother. And there was a firing party from Collins Barracks. uh, Let's see if we can see the inscription. isn't very clear on it. But Sheila, the Valish. Nora and Sheila are buried in St Finbar Cemetery in Cork, their grave not far from the Republican plot. Loving memory of Sheila Wallace, Staff Officer, Cork 1 Brigade, St Augustine and Street. That's and her sister's on the, written on the site. Nora Wallace died 17th of September 1970. It's hard, even after all the research and interviews for this documentary, to imagine what Cork and Ireland was like 100 years ago during the fight for independence. Up until now, the only link with my grand-aunts was the fond way my mother would mention them from time to time. 
it still seems incredible and almost unreal what I have discovered about them. Their ability to run the shop as an intelligence and communication centre, a secret meeting place and a safe house, right under the noses of the British police and army forces, is an amazing testament to their character. If any two women deserved immortality for their work in the following three or four years, he's referring to the War of Independence, they did. And that came from Florio Donoghue, who was the intelligence officer for the Cork No. 1 IRA Brigade, referring to two of his finest secret agents. These women, they were all shunted into the sidelines of history. And if there's any value to commemorations, it really is since the 1916 100th anniversary that, that this spotlight has been put on the women and your, your grandans fit into that. I think it's great that people are paying attention to them, finally, and their remarkable story. It's the idea of them being accepted as peers within the IRA. That's what kind of makes them quite unique. I think, paradoxically, the scale and extent of the success of the intelligence operation, which is centred on, on the Wallace sisters, is the extent to which it is, is unknown. It was unknown during the War of Independence because the, the British simply are unaware of what's going on in that shop. While I feel closer to them, I still wonder what it would be like to travel back, stroll into the little shop, dark in the shadow of the large church, and see Nora at the counter and maybe catch a glimpse of Sheila in the back, at the kitchen table, glancing up to check who I was. Rifles, Remington. Friend or foe. Pistols, revolver, 455 with six-inch barrel. Before returning to carefully writing a secret message or working on her stock-taking ledger. Sight style, magazines, pins catch safety, sword bayonets. The cause of their success and the extent of their success in terms of penetrating British intelligence and stopping the British gaining intelligence really remains unknown to the present day. Those who were in the best position to know where they did go on record, they are universal in their praise. Florida Donoghue, in effect, says without them, the campaign could not have been waged in the successful manner that it did. So in a strange way, a silence of history is itself the best praise that one can pay to an intelligence officer is that they keep mum. You've been listening to The Little Shop of Secrets from the documentary on one. It was narrated by Bill Murphy and produced by Bill Murphy and Sarah Blake, with additional research by Ted Murphy. Sound supervision was by Liam O'Brien, Niall O'Sullivan and Brian Fitzpatrick. The historical consultant was Niall Murray. The voice of Sheila Wallace was played by Dawn Bradfield, Nora Wallace by Norma Sheehan and Sean O'Hegarty by Tim Desmond. For more information, visit rte.ie forward slash dot com one. Until next time, thanks for listening.